Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we are taking a look at a book. The book is Outcast United, an American town, a refugee team, and one woman's quest to make a difference. The author is Warren St. John, New York Times reporter. Uh, takes a look at changes in a small southern town, in this case Clarkston, Georgia, brought about by an influx of refugees from all over the world. And specifically, a look at the difference made in the lives of uh, many young people in that town by an American-educated Jordanian woman, Luma Mufle, who started three soccer teams called the Fujis, composed of refugee boys. It's the story of a determined woman who became involved in the lives of young charges. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be there. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yeah. yeah. Okay. One, I, I, one of the few. I, so. <laughs> I wanted to get to as close as I could. Uh, we appreciate you taking the hour to, to be with us. And uh, I should say that uh, there are uh, some exciting things going on with uh, uh, not only the uh, teams, but uh, now a foundation, Fuji's Family. You can find information on that at fujisfamily.org. And uh, uh, later in the hour, we'll get to a lot of the great programs going on now as a result of uh, the work of Luma Mufle. Uh, I want to start uh, with a little bit of your background, if I could. Um, you grew up in Jordan, uh, in Amman. Is that correct? I, I did. I was born and raised in Amman, Jordan, um, and uh, came to the United States when I was 18 to go to college. And uh, in Jordan, had an interest in sports and, uh, in fact, encountered a, a coach there, I understand it, who had an influence on you, uh, Coach Rhonda Brown there at uh, something called the American Community School. Yeah, um, my parents um, made me attend uh, British and American schools, and um, both those schools had a pretty good athletic program. And um, all my coaches growing up were uh, Western coaches, but the one I think that impacted me the most was Coach Brown. Um, and it sounds like uh, you know you you followed in her footsteps. She was she was a, uh, a loving but uh, tough coach. Yeah, uh, I think uh, all the coaches that had a really strong impact on me were the ones that used tough love. I mean, I played uh, some little league baseball also growing up, and my coaches were former Marines that worked at the U.S. Embassy, and they also had the tough love approach, and uh, that was the method that got me to reach my fullest potential and uh, a lot of my other teammates as well so I, I do agree with that approach a lot and that uh, that I guess you find uh, it gets the most out of the out of the athletes I, I think it, it does because they have these high expectations of you and they push you to the limit and they don't make excuses for you and the coaches that always made excuses for me I would just get by with coasting mm-hmm. you know be like well they don't expect this I can show up late I don't have to do this but when a coach holds you accountable, then you want to excel. Uh, so you played various sports, as I understand it, um, including soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about soccer that uh, and that remained a love of yours, right? I, I think because it was the first sport I knew. Um, you know, I grew up playing it in the streets uh, with my cousins and brothers and neighbors. And so it, I grew up playing it very informally, not with a youth league or anything like that. And I remember you know, waiting anxiously every four years for the World Cup and, you know, pretending I was a different soccer player each day, mm-hmm. uh, you know, either scoring goals or saving goals or whatever it was. Um, I think there's something very powerful to that game, um, and that's the one I've always loved the most. Um, and that truly is the worldwide sport, right, as most uh, nations call it football. Yeah, it is. Did you have the favorite? most popular sport in the world. Yeah, certainly. Um, and that's the sport where you're, where you'll see kids in the streets, I guess, in most nations playing playing soccer. Yeah, like I was speaking to a group of kids that were going to head out to the Peace Corps, and, you know, they are asking for some pieces of advice, and I was like, you know what, just grab a soccer ball mm-hmm. and walk out, and you'll instantly have a group of friends. You'll instantly have an in with the community because you will be one of them with that ball. Mm-hmm. You know, you won't be an outsider anymore. You You waited for the World Cup every four years. Did you have favorite players? I had favorite teams. Uh, Brazil and Italy were my top teams, and mm-hmm. I remember watching like Seco and Socrates with the Brazilian team in '82 and '86. And yeah, mm-hmm. Brazilians have always been my favorite. And so, uh, growing up and going to American and British schools, um, you you uh, learned English very well, obviously. And when you went to college, I was reading uh, that uh, roommates and friends didn't even know you were Jordanian for a while. No, they didn't. You know, I don't try to call a lot of attention to myself. And um, 
So I, I tried to blend in as much as I could. And yeah, even my best friend, who's my best friend now, the first three or four weeks of school, she didn't know, um, you know, where I was from. Like I said, I was from Jordan. She actually thought it was Jordan, Utah. Isn't there a oh, really? town? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no, it's not Jordan, Utah. And then she, she's like, there's, she's like, so you're a diplomat's kid? I was like, no, I'm, I'm Arab. And she was just shocked because I wasn't what her stereotype of an Arab would be. Um, then you decided to come to the United States for college uh, in, I guess, upper upstate New York, and then you just found a college, Smith College in Massachusetts, that you liked. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, good good experiences there in college. It was incredible. I mean, it was uh, good to be. It was my first time away from home. I think I did a lot of growing up, um, and I was on my own. You know, I had to do everything by myself and make decisions. Um, you know, about when to study, when to go out, when to what to get involved in, and no one was telling me what to do. Um, so, you know, it was a good learning process, um, and I loved it. I made some incredible friends at school and, um, you know, got to experience things I never would have otherwise. Then a very important experience, you made the decision, I don't know whether this was in your senior year, that you were going to stay in the United States. Uh, this is something your your father didn't did not want, I understand it. I don't think most parents would have wanted that. You know, um, they they thought most uh, most families that send their kids abroad expect them to come back, you know, to their country and work there and, you know, get married and start a family. And, you know, I, I kind of wanted to try things out on my own. I liked the independence that the United States offered. Um, I liked uh, being able to just be anyone, you know, like in Jordan, like everyone knew my family, everyone knew you know, who I was, and I kind of like the anonymity that the United States offered. Um, and I don't know, maybe I was being naive, thinking, oh, I can make this on my own. I don't need anyone's support with it. But no, my family was not happy with that. And in fact, you then had to make it on your own, right? Yeah. It was like a rude awakening. I went from, you know, having everything um, to having nothing in a matter of uh, a week. Um my, my dad wasn't happy with the decision. He said, you know, if you want to do this, uh, you're going to do it on your own. And he cut me off uh, financially and um, I guess physically or socially from the family. Mm. So um, I, I did. It was, it was a tough couple of years. Yeah, that, that must have been devastating emotionally to, to not have even emotional contact, uh, you know, speaking contact with your family. Yeah, I mean, I, I would call home and... and my dad would hang up like he didn't let anyone in the family communicate with me. And it was hard because I'm very close to them. You know, I grew up in a family of four kids and like over 50 cousins. And, you know, we all knew, you know, we did stuff together all the time and um, family events together. And so that, that was really hard. And then being here and not having a family or anyone I can go to. Um, so it's probably the most painful two years of my life. Mm. And part of that, a very interesting experience. You, uh, as a part of that, you were invited by a, a college friend to go work at a what is it, a mountain resort in North Carolina? Yeah, um, in Highlands, North Carolina. And um, I, I don't know whether it was you or the people around you decided, um, you know, someone with a with a uh, with a Muslim name that might not fit in. So you were called Liz. Yeah. You know, it's a small town. It's predominantly white. Um, Most of the people that worked at the restaurant um, were were locals, and um, I don't think it ever met someone from out of the country. Uh, Some of them haven't, you know, don't even interact with people out of the state. Um, So the owner, my friend, felt, you know, like it would be better if they knew me as Liz, as, you know, an American from Boston or wherever. Um, so it was funny because they'd refer to me as Yankee and, you know, like it wasn't in a positive way. So I was like, well, they don't like anyone. Like, I don't think it would be a problem if they knew I was Arab. So, um, and yeah. I, as I understand it, um, uh, apparently uh, this kind of illustrates maybe the, you know, some of those, uh, tensions. Uh, there's a gentleman who apparently was trying to impress you and then brought out some, uh, artifacts from the, from his ancestors, Ku Klux Klan stuff. Yeah, he, he was funny because he, like, uh, sent flowers to the restaurant, and, you know, I was up at the desk, and they're like, oh, we have a delivery for Liz. And so, like, I'm carrying the, it back, and I'm telling my friend, I'm like, Misty, there's some flowers for Liz. And she looks at me and started, you know, busts out laughing. She's like, that's for you. I'm like, who's sending me flowers? You know, and then it was this guy, and he came by uh, later that night and, um, uh, you know, was, you know, 
I think his attempt at flirting, I don't know if anyone would call it uh, successful. And he pulled out this, you know, KKK uh, Grand Wizard outfit, you know, to try to show me in his, like, great uncle was uh, a Grand Wizard. And he was proud of it. And mm. I was horrified. I, I left. And, um, and you know, then, like, I spent a year and a half up at the restaurant, like, on and off. And um, they eventually, like, the people that worked with me got to know who I was and my background and all that. And, um you know, didn't seem to have any problem with it once they got to know me. Hmm. And then at, uh, at some point, you decided to move to the Atlanta area. Why Why? Why Atlanta? Well, Atlanta was the closest city to Highlands. Highlands was too small of a town. I, I couldn't do it, and there wasn't much to do. It was like a resort town, so you either worked in hotel and restaurant industry or, you know, you lived there. Um, and it was a predominantly older community, and so I... Atlanta was the closest city, and it was warm. I grew up in the desert, so I didn't want to move back north. Um, and so I moved uh, a few days before my uh, 24th birthday. Hmm. And I was thinking when I when I read that you made that decision, uh, it makes a little more sense now that you explained it. You were in North Carolina first. Yeah. Uh, but I, I wondered, you know, moving to the south, you know, as a, <laughs> as a, as a uh, Muslim uh, immigrant, you know, Jordanian uh, immigrant, uh, but I, I don't know whether you factored that all in. Uh, and by this time, you'd already been in North Carolina, so. Well, yeah, I'd been in North Carolina, and that's where I fell in love with the South. Like, you know, I mean, there were some, you know, incidences that, you know, stand out, like, you know, the guy with the KKK outfit. And there's also this incredible uh, hospitality that the people I worked with showed me that no other group had showed me before. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have some similarities in our food, like the okra and the rice and the beans and all that stuff and the sweet tea. Um but there's a hospitality that I experienced with Southerners that I haven't experienced in any other part of the country. So, th- so there were some positives. I'm, I'm probably selling yeah. the South short in, in that terms. So. Um, and I, I believe you worked as a waitress and probably various other jobs. That at a certain point, you started a business. I did. I um, I worked as a waitress, you know, freelance doing graphic and web design and some temping. Just was trying to piece it together, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. You know, and then I opened up a cafe in, in Decatur, Georgia. Um, so, and yeah. Uh, Decatur, uh, t- tell me what kind of a town Decatur was. So Decatur's, uh, it's like right out of Atlanta. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Atlanta, but Atlanta's just uh, sprawl. So you have Atlanta and then all these like little suburbs that attach to it. Um, it's uh, about 10, 15 minutes from downtown Atlanta. It's... Uh, Predominantly white, uh, middle class, upper middle class, uh, educated. Uh, there's uh, Agnes Scott College is right there. Emory University is about 15 minutes away. Um, it, it's a great little town. Um, it's got everything you would need there. And uh, I suppose, uh, you know, who knows uh, the way your life would have gone, but uh, uh, as I understand it, you like to take some drives, and a uh, uh, rather fateful day you took a drive and noticed some boys playing soccer in the, I guess, the nearby field or in the street and uh, and decide you wanted to join them? Well, um, the one thing Decatur didn't have was a Middle Eastern grocery store. And so I would venture out to Clarkson, which was five minutes away from Decatur, um, to this Middle Eastern grocery store. And I'd literally just go to the store and back, never anywhere else around uh, the area. And, you know, never questioned why there was a Middle Eastern grocery store in this uh, town. Um And then one day, like, on my way back from the store, I missed my turn um, and had to U-turn into this apartment complex. And when I did, I saw these boys in the parking lot of their complex uh, playing barefoot with this really raggedy ball. And they had, you know, two stones set up as their goals. And, um, you know, and then that image, uh, like, stuck with me. It was the way I grew up playing soccer. And maybe I was a little homesick or something, but, you know, I stayed in my car uh, and watched them for an hour or so, um, and then headed home. Um, But I came back out later in the week, and this time I was a little bit more prepared. I was armed with a soccer ball, Um, and I stepped out of my car, and the boys uh, rushed the car right away, and they wanted the ball, and so I asked to play in in exchange for that, and uh, they got in their little huddle, and uh, debated amongst themselves whether they would let the strange woman play with them, but um, eventually the fact that I had a much nicer ball, it won out, and they let me on a team uh, very reluctantly um, and gave me the chubby kid and the tiny one, um, but it, it was great, It was, and, and I played with them for a few hours and continued to come out and play with them. 
did you know, and I, I assume among these uh, kids, you know, the refugees? I, I did. I mean, they stood out as not being from this country. I think when you're not from this country, it's easy for you to identify those that aren't. Um, just little, sometimes it's mannerism, sometimes it's accents. With these boys, it was very obvious they weren't. Um, the first group of kids I met were from Afghanistan and Sudan, and so um, they spoke broken English, and um, yeah. So I, I did know they were refugees. So how did it happen from this encounter in and in a pickup game uh, to starting uh, some, some teams, coaching some teams? Um, it happened very organically. Like, we would play together, you know, quite often, and they would ask questions like, how do you know how to play and all this stuff? And I told them that I was coach. Um, I'd coached previously at a local YMCA and um, had a girls' team that I'd coached for four years um, and was getting jaded by the experience. Uh, youth soccer can sometimes get a little bit overly competitive, and uh, the team that I had coached uh, had, had changed from, you know, like a fun experience to something, to win at all costs uh, mentality with uh, some of the parents. Um, so I was looking for an out, another outlet to go back to the game that I love. And so when they found out that I, I coached, um, they, they said, oh, you know, can we have our own team? I was like, you guys want us to have our own team? And they got excited at that. I think a few of them thought we were going to have our own professional soccer team. Um, but we ended up uh, forming our own team. We started uh, flyering the neighborhood, and then the boys and I would drive around in my car, and we'd approach kids in the neighborhood that were about the right size and tell them about the tryouts. And, um, yeah, it was from there we started the first team, and now it's grown to four teams. And and even more in this uh, foundation that we'll get to a, a little bit later. Some great work going on. We're talking with uh, Luma Mufle, who is uh, coach. She's coach uh, Luma. She's known to her uh, players. Uh, started uh, some uh, soccer teams in the small town of Clarkston, Georgia. It's a suburb of Atlanta. Uh, high population of refugees there. Uh, started some uh, soccer teams for refugee boys. They're called the Fujis, and that's uh, grown and grown until uh, now there's a foundation and uh, a lot of help for the boys and their families. And we'll get into uh, how Luma Bufle, uh got into all of that. I've been profiling a little bit of her personal story. Uh, this book, uh, based on this story, it's called Outcast United, an American Town, a Refugee Team, and One Woman's Quest to Make a Difference by New York Times reporter Warren St. John. Uh, here's a quote from uh, the biography of Luma Mufle from uh, the Speakers Bureau. Uh, she says, I thought I would coach twice a week and on weekends, like coaching other kids. Instead, it's a 40 or 50 hours a week, coaching, finding jobs, taking people to the hospital. You start off on your own, and you suddenly have a family of 120. I guess that <laughs> that explains kind of in capsule form what happened from just coaching this team. Well, like, I would coach the kids, and then after practice, a couple of the kids would approach me to help them with their homework. Um, their parents were illiterate, couldn't speak or uh, couldn't read or write English, and so I was the one person that they knew that could help them, and so... You know, of course I did. And so I would, you know, started out first helping like a couple of kids at, at their house and then the other kids heard about it and then they wanted help with their homework. And, you know, then I would just hop from apartment to apartment or sometimes there would be like seven or eight of us in the hallway of one of the apartment complexes trying to get work done. Um, and I was like, wow, this is not very efficient way of, of doing it. And, you know, so I tried to round up some friends and volunteers to get uh, more people involved to do that. But it was like, you know, they, they were refugees in this country, and we were supposed to give them this, like, welcome to America. But for the most part, they get left on their own. And so when they find someone in their community that is willing to do a little bit, a lot of them will, will latch on. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're getting calls, you know, to go to the hospital or help them fill out their food stamps application. And um, and I, I don't know, like, for me, like, I was working with the kids, and so I, how am I going to say no to the mom that I can't help with her food stamp, stamp applications? Because if I didn't, then it wouldn't get filled out, and then the kids that I coach wouldn't have food. Um, so. There's a there's a particular story, and this is on the uh, on the website, uh, fujisfamily.org, which is the website, the, the foundation. Uh, I wonder if you could tell this. It, it's an experience of one of the kids on your team, um, I think you're giving him a, a right ride home, home and uh, he says, I'm hungry, mm -hmm. and then you found so, out he really was hungry. 
Yeah, um, so I was taking one of the kids home, and he's, like, uh, holding his stomach, and I'm like, what's wrong? And he's like, Coach, I'm hungry. I was like, don't worry, we're going to be at your house in a, in a couple of minutes. You'll have something to eat there. Um, you know, I was thinking he was trying to get me to, you know, stop at McDonald's or Taco Bell or something for him. Um, and he's like, no, uh, Coach, we don't have any food at home. And I'm like, yeah, of course you have food at home. There's got to be something there. He's like, no, it's that time of the month. And I'm like, what do you mean it's that time of the month? And I found out that time of the month meant the time the food stamps run out. Um, and I'd gone into the apartment complex and got into his apartment. And when I walked in, the apartment was uh, completely dark. And his mom was in the corner rocking back and forth saying, uh, I work hard every day, every day I work. Um, and the, the there was nothing in the fridge. There was nothing in the cupboards. And there's this woman who was working 40 hours a week at, you know, a, f- a four or five star hotel in town, uh, working full time, but commuting two hours each way to get there because of our public transportation system. She had four, uh, three boys under the age of 14 and wasn't making ends meet. Um, and so I went to, um, we, the boy and I went to the grocery store. We picked a bunch of groceries and I came back and I sat with the mom and I tried to make a budget. And here I was thinking, oh, I'm college educated. This woman's probably spending beyond her means. And we sat down and I couldn't make ends meet. Like, there was nothing that she was spending money on that was not a necessity, that wasn't a, a bill she had to pay, um, and that she didn't have any credit card bills. Um, and that was a really rude awakening for me um, to think that, you know, the kids that living five miles away from me, kids that I've been working with, were going to bed hungry because they weren't getting paid enough to make ends meet. Because I always believed if you worked hard enough, you, you could make it. Um, so, like, all these, like, small little uh, stories and experiences I had, like, really uh, sh- shook a lot of my beliefs um, and opened me up to the reality of what it's like to be- live in this country if you're low income or you don't speak the language or you don't have any skills. Um, yeah. Uh, and this, on top of experiences like this, I'm sure are not unique, on top of horrible things that uh, the parents and the children would have experienced in many cases uh, to make them, you know, refugees. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, as I understand it, Clarkston, Georgia was chosen as a, a refugee center, one of many around the country because of, I don't know, uh, services and et cetera available, but uh, apparently you found out that uh, many times uh, these just were overwhelmed or were not sufficient, obviously. I don't think they're sufficient, and I don't think there's enough of them. You know, I think uh, they're they're put into these different resettlement locations around the country, you know, because, oh, there's affordable housing or they have access to jobs, but that's not enough. Like, you know, in order for someone to be successful, you have to give them some skills so, so they can get out of this cycle. Um, and, you know, Clarkson wasn't prepared for any of this. I don't think any town that had an influx of refugees um, – was prepared. I mean, there's been incidences in, like, Lewiston, Maine, and Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Des Moines, Iowa, which are all also resettlement locations that have had similar experiences to Clarkston. So I don't think Clarkston is unique in its resistance to having refugees resettle here or in its um, not being able to handle all of it. Uh, so uh, we'll take a brief break, and then when we come back with Luma Mufle, uh, I'll ha- ask her to introduce us to uh, some of the, uh, especially some of the original players on the on that first team, uh, and uh, some of their stories, uh, beginning with uh, some of the horrible things they went through, and then uh, some of the hope that uh, programs like the soccer program Luma Mufle has uh, provided them, uh, give them, and uh, some of the hopes I'm sure she has for. Uh, some of these young men, uh, including college and successful lives in the United States. Luma Mufle is the subject of the book Outcast United, an American town, a refugee team, and one woman's quest to make a difference by New York Times reporter Warren St. John. Uh, tale of uh, Clarkston, Georgia, a refugee settlement center. Changes brought to that town by an influx of refugees. And what Luma Mufle, an American-educated Jordanian woman, uh, tried to do and is continuing to try to do to help uh, especially the uh, the young men of the of the town and their families uh, through soccer and other programs. We'll uh, continue with Luma Mufle after this brief break. 
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the 7th Annual Zion Canyon Music Festival, September 25th and 26th, under the cliffs of Zion National Park. Two stages featuring national touring musicians, art, education, food booths, and a kid's zone. More at ZionCanyonMusicFestival.com. This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged schoolchildren from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. Navy drills using sonar can damage the hearing of whales. They depend upon hearing for all of their interactions in the environment. The ocean is a very dark place, and many scientists, including the great Sylvia Earle, have said that a deaf whale is a dead whale. Now the Navy agrees to limit sonar use where whales feed and breed. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for tuning in. If you just tuned in, we're talking to Luma Mufle, who is uh, a coach. She's known as Coach Luma to her uh, athletes who are refugee boys. Uh, it's a town in Georgia, a small town, a suburb of Atlanta called Clarkston, uh, designated as a refugee center. And from 90% white in 1980 to now uh, one in every three is, uh, is uh, uh, from out of the country and uh, 50 countries represented. In this uh, small town, Georgia, it's uh, undergone a, a radical transformation the last few years. Um, and a lot of uh, refugee boys suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, having seen horrible things, their families as well, of course, uh, found a common bond in soccer. And Luma Bufle started uh, some soccer teams called the Fugees, short for refugees, composed of refugee boys. It's the story of uh, this woman who became involved in the lives of her young charges, keeping the boys in school and out of gangs and helping the families survive as well. The book is Outcast United. An American Town, a Refugee Team, and One Woman's Quest to Make a Difference by New York Times reporter Warren St. John. And uh, she's our guest for the hour on the program. Uh, I neglected to, to talk about 9-11. Of course, in the middle of all this, and you're living in the South, and uh, not to say it's any different from anywhere else in the United States that, that would have maybe had an impact in the life of a uh, of a woman from Jordan, a, a Muslim. Uh, did you have any experiences following 9-11 in, in that vein? Um, I, I think a lot of it was, was, was the talk and the, you know, whether it was on TV or the radios or even amongst, uh, acquaintance, acquaintances, uh, you know, the, uh, Islamophobia that was coming out. Um, it, it was, it was hard to hear that because in, in no way did, you know, what happened on 9-11 would have been justified by any Muslim. Um, so it was hard hearing a religion that I, I believe in come under attack. Um, and I remember there was one time I was at, at this gas station. I was getting ready to pay for my car, uh, the gas, and the woman in front of me was, was veiled. And the guy asked her to leave. And this was an Indian guy, you know, like telling her, no, we're not going to serve you here. And no one in the, in the gas station spoke up. No one said anything, um, including myself. Like, I... I I, I didn't know how to stand up. I, I was scared to identify as that, um, and and so yeah. What about uh, your players? I don't know if by then, uh, you know, you were coaching, but uh, maybe you know a few years later, any problems 
in the post 9-11 atmosphere? I, I think we still live in a post 9-11 world. I mean, even now, like with uh, a potential um, Islamic center near ground zero, I mean, you're hearing a lot of the rhetoric that we heard around 9-11. You know, and there are times like we would go to games like in the past two or three years and, um, you know, the they have to read the names of the players out loud to verify that they're the ones uh, who are playing. And, you know, we have a couple of Mohammeds on our team and, uh, you know, a couple of Abdullahs. And, and, you know, every now and then you'd hear a comment, oh, oh what kind of names are these? Or the ref would uh, snicker or, or mock it. And it's, it's hard. Um, Do you get questions from any of the boys on your team about any of these issues? No, I, I I think sometimes they don't understand what's going on, um, and you know, like I, I mean, they'll, they'll sometimes like we'll get stared at when we walk onto a field. Like we we call a lot of attention. You have this team; it's uh, all refugee boys, predominantly boys from Africa, uh, playing in a predominantly white sport at this point, um, and led by a female coach. And so we get people looking at us, and um, you know, like I remember walking onto one field and. Um, the one of the kids, like, he just grabs my arm. He's like, Coach, it's all white people. And I look at him, I was like, it's always white people when we play. You know, like, it's not any different. Um, you know, and after the game, we'd had, like, a couple of um, slurs during the game at, at the kids, you know, telling them to go back to, you know, where they came from or um, go back to Africa. And, you know, one of the kids like, why do they say stuff like that? I was like, I don't know. And he's like, and, and he's like, what if they knew about you? What would they say then? You know, and I was like, what do you mean, what if they knew about me? He's like, what if they knew you were Muslim? You know, and we jokingly sometimes, you know, like I'll tell the kids, I was like, maybe I should wear a burqa to the field to see what kind of reactions we would get. Mm-hmm. Um, and they begged me not to do that, mm-hmm. not that I think I ever would. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus there are economic disparities, right? The, the, a lot of teams that you played would have been, uh, you know, the, the spending thousands of dollars on, on the kids, on the equipment, on, on everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we had one game we showed up and, um, you know, my first team had just finished, and my second team is, is coming in, and we're trading our um, our cleats. You know, we're sharing cleats among the team, and you know, trading our shin guards. And the other team is examining the field, trying to decide what screw-in cleat they need to put in. Like, is it soft enough, or do we need to put a harder turf uh, screw-in? And we're looking at them like they're crazy. Um, but it was refreshing to know that hey, we didn't need all that equipment to to have a good game. Um, I wonder if you could tell me about uh, some of the boys, especially on that uh, the first team, uh, maybe uh, you know one or two that especially stands out to you. Uh, maybe tell their tell their story. Um, I I mean I've I've coached a lot of boys over two hundred in, in the past six years, so all of them have uh, some pretty powerful and uh, traumatic backgrounds. Um, but the most important thing I think in, in their stories is, is their resilience and them being able to overcome what they've been through. Um, I've had a kid uh, from Afghanistan. Um, I got really close to his family and got to know their uh, backstory quite well. And he had um, he'd grown up in northern Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, you know, the Taliban had raided their village uh, a few times and um, ended up uh, taking the father and the older brother away. Um, and at that point, the mom was like, okay, we're leaving. And so she packed up her uh, three boys and daughter, and they uh, made their uh, journey to Pakistan by foot and by truck. And at one point, they were smuggled uh, over the border in this uh, truck that was transporting rugs, and they were hiding under these rugs. Um, and the boy talks of when, you know, it was the, the truck was stopped, and they were trying to... Uh, the Taliban was searching, but the rugs were too heavy for them to lift up, so they didn't bother. But at the same point, the boys were having a hard time breathing with all this weight over them. Mm-hmm. And they were seven or eight when they did that escape. Um, and they ended up going to Pakistan and um, having to work. Um, they actually, it's ironic, they had to ended up working in a carpet or a rug manufacturing company. And at seven or eight years old, were hand-weaving these um, Pakistani rugs. Um, so their family could make ends meet. And uh, to this day, they have not heard from their uh, father or brother. I, I think um, I think the younger boy holds on to the hope that they're alive because he speaks of them as they are, but the mom, um, I think, has accepted that they're not. So, um, 
And this would be a common thread running through a lot of the, the stories yeah. of the boys you yeah. coached. I mean, the uh, common thread is that uh, they were forced to flee their country. Uh, some of them, you know, like we've had one kid uh, seen his father shot in front of him. Uh, a couple of the kids have seen their mothers raped in front of them. Like, there's always this, like, horrible atrocity um, to force them to leave. And, and they've seen that. Like, these are kids that are, you know, 8, 10, 15 that are seeing this. Um, and that's part of their childhood. Uh, no child should ever have to experience something like that. And then they flee their home country and come to a, a very different environment. And it, I guess in many, many times that look down upon, you know, uh, racial epithets not accepted. Mm-hmm. And so the, so the problems continue. Yeah, like, you know, they've, they've left their countries, they've fled, you know, they've had to live in refugee camps, um, you know, like having to get their own well water and scrape for food and not go to school. And then, you know, they're one of the lucky few that we say, oh, you guys get to come to America and start anew. And then they come here and they're not treated with any respect and they don't understand it because they've done nothing wrong. Like I always tell them, like, you know, people will respect you if you respect them, but then some days, you know, we'll have interactions where someone is very disrespectful to them. Um, and so like teaching them to rise above that and walk away from it, um, cause they are remarkable young men. Hmm. What, what do, uh, you know, if we're looking to, to help or to, to reach out to uh, any refugees that might be in our communities, what do refugees most need? I think it depends on when they're uh, coming in. Like those that come in immediately need help trying to figure out the system, whether it's filling out food stamp applications, registering for school, uh, getting school supplies, um, you know, furniture for their apartments. I'm sure if there's any organizations that do resettlement, furniture is a big thing because they have to outfit these uh, apartments for the for the families. Um, and then I think it's also doing long-term programming because, like, you can't just bring people in, give them three or four months of help, and then expect them to have successful, um, full lives. Um, so that's where we step in. Um, now, when you started these teams, I, I don't know, you'd, I, I'm guessing you probably didn't envision where this has ended up with Fuji's family and the foundation and a lot of uh, programs. What was your goal originally? <laughs> I didn't have a goal. I think it was more selfish, like it was for me. I wanted to coach a group of kids. I wanted to get back into the game that I love, and it just grabbed me. It was life-changing, you know, and at, at, you know, I was 30, 29, 30 at the time when this happened, and I didn't expect my life to get so immersed in theirs and this be my life's work, but I don't regret uh, for a single moment, like, what happened and how it came about. We're talking on Access Utah today with Luma Mufle, who is a, a Jordanian woman, uh, educated in America, went to college in America, went to American British schools in, in Jordan, uh, decided in college to stay in, in America and to make her life here. And uh, little did she know that the, that would include not only coaching refugee boys on, in soccer, but uh, helping them and helping their families and uh, making, as she just said, making this her life's work. Uh, but that has happened. And uh, this part of the story is told in the book Outcast United, an American town, a refugee team, and one woman's quest to make a difference. New York Times reporter Warren St. John is the author. You said uh, in a New York, uh, rather a National Public Radio interview, um, this was interesting to me, uh, the practice and the games that you're referring to, it's the only part of their day where they're not criticized, where they're not made fun of, where they don't feel like they don't belong, and they need that hour and a half every day. Yeah, like I have a lot of people that will approach our, you know, approach me and say, oh, we need to have therapy for your kids. We need to, you know, have them talk with some professionals. And maybe, you know, they're right, but at the same, at the same point, like our kids need to feel like they're normal and they need to feel like they belong. And no place else does does that happen except on the soccer field. At school, they get teased for their accents. They're, they stand out. But on the field, um, the Fuji's, like, your difference is normal. Like, if you're from a different country, if you speak funny, if you eat different food, that that's what we are. Um, and so they need that. Like, we all need a, a part of our day. Like, it's sad that they only get an hour and a half, or now it's three because they have to go to tutoring, um, where it's normal, where they're okay, where everything they do is is good. And the thing is, they're 
a lot of them are very gifted athletes, so they excel. So they're like the stars for that hour and a half. Yeah, I, I think for any young person, it's it, it's very fulfilling to find something you're good at and, and to do that and to feel that satisfaction. Even more important for boys who've gone through what they've gone through, horrible things, to get on the soccer pitch, and, and this is something they're very good at. Yeah. I mean, they could be doing something else with that time. You know, they could be joining gangs. They could be, um, you know, shoplifting or, you know, but they, they don't do that. They they want to do something that's a bit more positive. Um and I guess these are some of the pitfalls for young men in a refugee community, uh, gangs, drugs, you know, other problems? Those are the big ones, uh, gangs and drugs. We've had two shootings in the past three weeks at one of the apartment complexes where the bulk of my kids live. Um, they were they were coming home from uh, practice one day, and um, there's this Burmese man, a 21-year-old, that was shot uh, by a rival African-American gang. Um in the drive-by, and our kids, um, like, were there when, when it happened. Like, they heard the shot, and then uh, one of the boys ended up having to call 911 um, to get the police out there. Mm. So the, the reality in Clarkson is it's pretty rough. You know, it's not like the small, sleepy southern town. It's um, it's a little bit rougher than that. So part of what you're doing with your rules, you have some very strict rules, is... Uh, trying to get the young men to, to live up to certain standards and keep them protected from some of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that if you set standards high enough for any group of kids, those kids will live up to that. And if you set the standards low, that's where they'll go. Um, so we set the standards very high. Like for our, our kids, you're, you're expected to graduate from high school and you're expected to go to college. You know, it's not like, oh, the lucky one will get to go. Um, or only a few of you will get to go. No, if you work hard enough, you're going to go. Um, and keep them off the streets and expose them to different opportunities that they can have and what else is out there and what else is possible for them. And that's your hope for all, all your boys? They, they, they go to college and from their successful lives? You know, I think for most of them that is the hope, but, you know, every now and then we'll get boys that are 17, 18, and, like, we got a kid last week. He's been here three weeks. Uh, he's 18. Um you know, I don't know how we can prepare him for college. So with that, we have a different approach. We try to get him into a GED course, get him paired up to learn a trade or a skill, and then go with that. I think my hope is for them to have uh, a different life than what their parents are having right now, is that they'll have opportunities that they don't have to work at the chicken factory or clean hotel rooms, that they can, you know, you know, drive a truck or manage a McDonald's or be a doctor or be a lawyer. It's whatever they want to be. Um, but I don't believe in cutting them off and saying, no, you can't do any of that stuff. Do you have success stories that, you know, from the kids from early on with, uh, with the soccer teams and some of these programs that have uh, now made a success that you can point to? Yeah, I mean, we, we've had... Um, Ten boys graduate from high school or get their high school uh, diploma. Uh, nine of them are in college right now um, on academic or athletic scholarships, um, and the first one will graduate next year. Um, and that kind of hit me hard. Like, I was talking to him the other day. He's like, Coach, uh, can you please not enter the President's Cup this year? I'm like, no, we enter it every year. This is a big tournament in Georgia. And I'm, I'm like, why wouldn't I enter? He's like, I'm graduating. And I'm like, no, 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 you graduate next year. And he's like, no, I'm graduating in May. And... I couldn't believe it because I coached him, you know, when he was 15, 16, and now he's he's graduating from college, and that was pretty cool to hear that. Yeah, that must be very gratifying, yeah. and and to, to know that there will be other success stories down the road. Yeah, well, and it's not just one. It's like there's, you know, every year from now on, we're going to have somewhat one or two or three kids graduating from college and from high school, and for all our kids, they're going to be the first in their families to graduate from high school, mm-hmm. and let alone go to college, um, uh, tell me a little bit about some of the programs with the Fuji's Family uh, Foundation. By the way, the website is fujisfamily.org. One of the problems, as I understand it, is problems reading. So you've and and other academic problems. I, I uh, noticed you've set up a Fuji's Academic Boot Camp. Yeah, we um, a, a lot of the kids when they come to this country, they're put in the age appropriate class. So if you're 13, 14, you're put into eighth or ninth grade. Um, having had no formal schooling in your life. So you're expected to take 8th and ninth grade math, even if you can't add or multiply. You're expected to read the literature of that class, even though you can't read. 
um, and our kids get passed through the system because they're a burden. And so I've had experiences with kids that have been in the public school system three or four years and they can't read, but they're getting A's and B's. Um, so a couple of academic programs we started, one, the first one we did was we started an academic boot camp during the summer um, where the boys um, attend academic camp for six weeks. They attend Agnes Scott. We bike in seven miles every day and we have uh, all these teachers and professors teaching the boys um, different readings and academic skills. And, uh, and then the afternoons we do health curriculum or math or science or group projects. And then we head back. And so for six weeks from eight to four thirty, they're doing that, um, instead of laying around at home doing nothing. Um, and then we started our own, uh, private middle school, uh, six through eighth grade Academy right now for 22 boys. And we have those boys from eight to three thirty, So it functions like a regular school. We have teachers and, um, and then they participate in our after-school programming. Um, and uh, any p- plans for the future, hopes that, uh, that you haven't achieved right now, but would hope to in the future? Well, we um, in December, we uh, accomplished, I think, our first hope or dream. Um, we purchased 19 acres of land in Clarkston, um, where we plan to build our home field um, and our school. And it will be the first uh, school for refugee kids in, in the country that's dedicated to refugee education. And it will be a 6th through 12th grade private academy. Um, right now it's boys only, but when we build our facility, we'll be bringing in our first group of girls. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, on a personal note, and this is in the epilogue to the book Outcast United, and uh, hopefully everyone's read the book, I'm not ruining anything, <laughs> uh, a very happy uh, note uh, in the personal story of Luma Mouflet. Uh There's been a reconciliation with your parents, right? Yes. Um, you know, it happened uh, right as I was uh, starting my work with the Fujis. But um, I remember a few years ago I was talking to my dad, and he was uh, frustrated with my brother who um, is not taking any job right now because he wanted, you know, higher pay or whatever. And my dad's like, I don't understand. Like, how can I get him to be more like you, like to work harder? To... And I was like, oh, just cut him off. And he looked at me, he's like, I'll never make that mistake again. Um, and that was the first time, like, he acknowledged that. Um, but we've had, you know, I think a lot of uh, parental relationships go through ups and downs, um, and ours is a little bit more public. But uh, my dad has a Google alert on me, so he'll, like, <laughs> call and say, oh, you're speaking at Utah State on Saturday. And I'm like, Dad, I know. Like, I agreed to do it. He's like, no, Google just, just sent me the notification, and I've had to explain that Google doesn't know stuff before I do. <laughs> Very good. Um, Very good. But, yeah. Uh, and there's a there's a very nice scene in the book near the end of the book where uh, your your parents are over for a visit and your dad's cooking food for for everyone on the team. Yeah, he's he's actually coming in October and the boys are all excited because he doesn't consider a meal a meal without meat and they love that. So and he he doesn't know how to cook for two or three people, so they'll come over quite regularly when he's there. And uh, in the book, uh, a presence is your grandmother, who has been an influence on you. It seems like a very wise woman. She predicted that give your parents time and they would, uh, and they would reconcile with you, I guess. I think most of our grandparents are a lot wiser than our parents. But... Yeah. Well, we've reached the end of the time. Uh, Luma Mufle is uh, the subject of the book, Outcast United, an American town, a refugee team, and one woman's quest to make a difference. Uh, Luma Mufle has made that difference, continues to do so uh, with the refugee community in uh, Georgia. And uh, her teams are called the Fujis. And the foundation now is the Fujis Family uh, Foundation, which is providing a lot of services for a refugee community. Fujisfamily.org is the website. Mufle, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much, and thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Special Collections and Archives. Merrill Kazir Library, presenting the 21st Annual Arrington Mormon History Lecture, Thursday, September 24th at 7 at the Logan Tabernacle. Student essay writing opportunities available. Details at 797-2663. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. Some of us who have to undergo physical therapy after a surgery or an accident moan and groan about the time and the aches and pains it entails. 
Oddly, I'm not part of that crowd, at least not totally. I actually kind of enjoy going to PT because I know it works after one, having two months of it last year after I had a knee replaced, and two, having it now after an accident in January. My knee came back to almost normal, and I can barely tell it's made of some unobtainium metal. My stability is now practically back to normal, and after countless balances on flat balloons, teeters and totters on styrofoam balls, tandem walks that go on for miles, and wobbling through the obstacle courses designed by some malevolent being from the axis of evil, my neck pain is much less than it was because of the number of pulleys and racks that I am invited to deal with, and because the electrical currents that zap the back of my neck seem strangely to give an extra kick to my trapezius muscle. But you know what the best part of PT is? It's all those young people who are earnest, smart, funny, and well-trained, and who can pummel your body, screw your head into a machine that looks like something from the dungeon of a medieval castle, and force you to stand on one foot on top of an air-filled pillow for a whole minute without falling. All of your challenges are met with a sprightly and eager, good job, even when you had to hold on to a wall or die. These young folks are dedicated, really dedicated, to making their clients well again. They coax you, give you encouraging words, check to see if you need a break, ask if a pillow would make you more comfortable as the electrical current shooting through your neck muscles renders you into a globule of quaking limbs. They're interested in the book you bring with you and want to know why it's called Being Mortal. This query was made by a sweet young woman as my neck was being pulled to 20 pounds of pressure by a traction machine. I mumbled that the, back, the book was kind of a reminder of my present condition, but I'm not sure she caught my humor. I tried to add a smile, but the Frankenstein collar around my neck didn't even allow a grimace. So you see, we PT clients are in great hands. Physical therapists are a breed of good-hearted folks who want to make sure that being mortal is a fun time. As I said, I rarely complain and find the whole three hours, three times a week, a great activity. I can't wait to see what else will occur to me in the coming years that will allow me to return to PT and to have a life of muscle spasms, leg and arm cramps, neck pulls, balloon balances, and leans into the wall corners to stretch my neck. I mean it. I really can't wait. This is Gina Wickwar. First of all, don't be alarmed by what you're about to hear. And the interesting thing is that, well, the first two halves of your brain are in your skull, and the third one, you know, is, is on a server in Oregon somewhere. Interesting is one word, sure. I'm Kai Rizdal. The inevitable future is another way you might go with that. The master algorithm next time on Marketplace from APN. Tonight at 6.30 here on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.